You're listening to the SOAS Festival of Ideas podcast on SOAS Radio. Hi, and welcome to episode two of the SOAS Decolonizing podcast, a space we're dedicating to exploring all things decoloniality here at SOAS. I'm Miriam Francois, your host, and for this episode, we're focusing in on colonialism, education, and history. And our first guest today is Dr. Eleanor Newbegin, a senior lecturer in the history of modern South Asia. Welcome, Eleanor. Hi, Miriam. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. So first question we like to pose to our guests, what does decolonizing mean to you? So I feel like this should be a question that has an easy answer, but I think the more I think about it and the more work I've done around it, the more complicated I, I find that question to answer. I think originally for me, I was interested in this idea of decolonizing, probably in quite a kind of academic and intellectual way. So I was interested in, I came to it through the discipline of history itself, which in the last 20, 30 years has been quite innovative about uh, questioning what truth is, where history is found. And I've always liked that bit of, when, I, when I've studied history, that was those were the debates I liked the most. So I think when I first found out about the kind of decolonizing agenda, I saw it through that framework, through quite a kind of intellectual framework. But the more I've been actively involved in it, and I guess kind of trying to teach with that idea, the more my sense of it has changed. And I guess I'm beginning to see it less as a kind of intellectual project and more in terms of lived experiences. And I am a white cisgendered woman. And so I've begun to realise that for many of the students of colour in my classroom, the, the, the topics and the questions we're grappling with around this issue of decolonising are not simply intellectual projects, but are about how people engage with the world, how they're represented in the world around them, how they're represented in the way that we remember the past. So I, what decolonizing is, is getting more and more complicated for me. And I think uh, it's about many different things and it will be different for different people. But I'm pushing myself now to think beyond a more intellectual understanding of that term and thinking about what it means for engagement in academic spaces, about a a, a kind of equality of learning, a safe space of learning, how people from different backgrounds and different, in different, embodied in different ways, can come together and talk as equals in a meaningful and engaged way. How about um, telling us a bit about how you became involved in the decolonial conversation? Um, you, you mentioned your identity. I think often we assume that you know the, the people who are going to be interested in this topic are those who are directly affected by it, and that you know how, how did you yourself become invested in this conversation? Yeah, good question. And um, let me try and keep the answer shorter rather than longer. So the thing that really kind of got me acting on this, um, I mean, I, th- I think when I was when I was at school and when I was at university, I I wasn't particularly, it wasn't the history classes around European history that appealed to me the most. I was always interested in the classes that I did that were about, uh, I guess, more global history when I was at school. And then it was about sort of 
the history of the global south when I was at university those were the classes that I found most interesting and and which I felt pushed the subject of history itself uh, in in ways that I appreciated and wanted to engage with but I think it was so I sort of moved from that initial interest into kind of really thinking about what decolonizing actually means through teaching at SOAS and through engaging with SOAS students who are from a huge variety of backgrounds and who come to study the history at SOAS for a, a wide variety of reasons and I think a couple of years ago I took over a class on the history of the partition of India from a, a, a colleague at SOAS. Um, so the, the colleague who designed the co- class, uh, Dr. Amrita Shodan, is um, is herself from India, is from Gujarat. And the course is designed to think about the history of partition in, in a decolonial way from different angles, thinking about how that history plays out for different people and thinking about the legacy of remembering 1947 and what that means for different people. And it's an absolutely brilliant course. It's been an honour to take it on. I was I became quite mindful of the dynamic in the room whereby lots of the students on the course were from South Asia or of South Asian heritage and were engaging with the subject material, particularly this question of memorialising um, 1947 in ways that were really different to my own engagement. And I wanted, I, I, I was struck by that and wanted to think with uh, with my students about how that was working. We were kind of dealing with these theoretical questions about how you remember history. And how we were remembering this past was a really live process in the classroom. We we were involved in thinking about the past and, the hi- and, and what history was together. Um, and so I think it's out of that classroom and out of the really amazing conversations I had with my students that I began to think about I guess decolonizing in a really kind of a more personal and active part of my life. So not just as a kind of project that you read about, but as something that I was involved with and I could tap into and play play a role with my students in shaping and taking forward. And and in that sense, there are quite a few people now now that decolonizing uh, as a term has sort of entered the mainstream. I guess one one of the critiques that you often hear is that you know actually the decolonizing movement is part of some sort of radical leftist agenda. Um, do you see the decolonizing movement as an inherently political um, project? And, and I suppose we probably have to discuss what we mean by political. I think that usually when that term is used with regards to things like decolonizing, it tends to mean profoundly subjective, um, meaning that it doesn't uh, hold weight um, or, or truth for everyone, but but is you know informed by a particular um, ideological uh, framework and in this case I suppose the accusation is that it's the uh, an ideological framework that is is a quite fringe and radical what what's your view on that yeah I, that's not how I recognize the term and I guess I think it probably it does turn on this question of what you think of as being political so I guess there's ideas about political that are linked to a specific ideology or a position uh, and and sort of set of principles that you follow through, I guess, more linked to kind of party politics or to particular political spectrums. And I think at the moment, there's a lot of discussion around ideologies in those terms, so kind of fascism, but also Trotskyism. And, you, you know, there's, there's a lot of that debate in, in society at the moment. 
I don't see decolonizing to fit into those positions at all. Rather, it seems to me to come from a different kind of political position, which is about practice and which is fundamentally one about equality and about how equality, not as something that's a kind of given uh, in a kind of more liberal political framework, but as something that needs to be worked for and achieved and discussed and managed, something that involves discussing past differences and inequalities in order to, to, so so equality is something that needs to be created out of society and experiences that have been fundamentally unequal and that, that are different. So I think it is inherently political in the sense of kind of seeking to change the world quite fundamentally, seeking to really address what have been historically embedded practices and, and traumas, seeking to engage with them and and think through how they've affected society. I guess there is a utopic element to it, an idea that you can move into something better than we have right now, that it is possible to create a place where differences can be acknowledged and managed safely without uh, creating binaries or violence and differences. I, you know, there's, there's, it, is, it is utopic that, I mean, we're not anywhere close to that, but it, the, I think the decolonizing agenda has an idea that we can work together to move to somewhere better. But I don't think that's about a kind of set of principles in any kind of ideological sense. I think that's about a way of being a sort of, what I see to be at the heart of decolonizing is about kind of self-reflection, thinking in an informed way about how history um, shapes the present, uh, being mindful of the fact that we are not the same, um, but we seek to work together to find common ground and to 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 cooperate to build something together so in in that sense I think it is a very radical politics but not of this kind of leftist ideological brand a a very different kind of world changing set of practices so you mentioned that the uh, decolonial project is kind of utopian in nature Um, I'm guessing that means that we haven't got anywhere in the world that we could refer to as decolonized or correct me if I'm wrong um, but but what would a decolonized SOAS look like and how do we go about that? I don't think that there is a, a, a place that is decolonized, no. But I also think that that's inherent in this idea of thinking about... So, I mean, if decolonizing is, is, is premised on the idea that human interactions in the world are informed by deeply socially constructed ideas of difference and inequality, ideas that are shaped through past events and the way in which we remember the past, but also ideas which can be uh, taken apart and overcome through challenge and and, and through active engagement with um, why we think differently. So sort of learning to understand how we think. then decolonizing isn't a kind of end point. It's an ongoing process. Uh, it's an it's an idea of thinking of how you think and engage together, and it's challenging. I think that that's definitely the case. It's not just a kind of tick box exercise. Um, and is so as there no way? <laughs> I don't think anyone could make that argument. Um, you could argue that SOAS is at least, or people in SOAS, certain parts of SOAS, certain people in SOAS are seeking to engage with those questions and think about what that might mean to bring into the university. 
whether or not SOAS or any university can be decolonized, again, that assumes an endpoint. Uh, I think that's still very much open to question. I think there's a lot of debate about how far the institution of the university, which of course comes from its own history and sets of structures and very kind of informed practices and ideas of inequality and hierarchy, how far that can ever be truly transformed into a space of, of greater equality. But I think it's worth trying at the moment. I mean, I think we should we should think critically and continuously about what we're doing and think about how to do that best and where to do that best. So it's not a, it's not a, a project that leads to an end goal. There's no kind of blueprint that you're seeking to move towards. That's also what I mean about going back to your question about the politics of of decolonize. I don't think there's a kind of manifesto that you you act on and sort of move towards. I think it's ongoing. But I think you have moments and there's moments in SOAS and there's moments in other debates where maybe people do find that common ground or feel that they're moving in a different way in terms of how they're interacting with each other and how they're thinking. And I guess the more of those moments we have, the better. I'd be interested, and I'm sure many people who are um, curious about decolonizing, whether it's their university or their schools or or the wider projects of British society, what are some of these challenges that you have encountered as part of the decolonizing movement? So I think, I I mean, I think that there are lots of challenges that shape this this work in universities and externally, and they they manifest in different ways. I think one of the big challenges... um, in SOAS, if we, if we focus on SOAS, is, is kind of around uh, maybe kind of training. So if you think about the academics at SOAS are very international, a lot of them come from across Europe, but also increasingly we have colleagues from who've trained in, in countries in Africa, countries in the, in the Middle East, in, in, in Asia too. And everyone has gone through a system that on the one hand looks the same, everyone has a university degree, everybody has this this PhD, but actually what they've done to get there and the pedagogical systems they've gone through to achieve that degree are quite different in different countries. And the age you are, so the, you know your generational identity when you went through school and what you were taught when you were at school and, and how you were trained in your PhD, that also makes quite a big difference. So I think my PhD training was quite different from that of my PhD. PhD supervisor. As a PhD supervisor now, I know I seek to train my PhD students in ways that are quite different to the way that I was trained. So we have a situation in which everyone's sort of coming together in this place called the university. Everybody seemingly has followed the same journey. And yet, actually, by thinking about it in those terms, we're eclipsing and ignoring all the many, many different ways in which people have understand education, understand training, and, and impart that to students as a result. So not that you can ever move to a point where everyone is kind of thinking in the same kind of homogenous way because everyone's come to to the university through their own route. But I think what we need to do more of in the university is acknowledge those differences and think about where that leaves us in conversations rather than assuming we're all on the same page, which I think happens very easily. Engaging more actively, making thinking about the differences between us and, and drawing that into the conversation, starting a conversation from the basis of saying, look, this is where I'm coming from. What do you think about this term? How do you understand this? What should we do next? You know, making those differences more explicit in our planning and in how we're talking about students and the university experience. I think that would be one way to engage it. And that's just, you know, you have examples of that all over society in, in, in every institution and even in families, you know, 
people have different understandings of a certain practice that you will share. And those differences are going to have subtle implications on, on how your interactions play out. And if you don't acknowledge them, those subtle implications can have quite big reverberations for where you, you go in your decision making. And so I think decolonizing is asking people to think about their positionality, about how they're coming to a point, what the baggage is that they bring with them, um, and to draw that into the conversation and to kind of open that up with the planning process and where to move to next. So self-awareness, it sounds like, is a, is a critical component, even if we know that decolonizing is a complex. So self-awareness, it sounds like, is quite an important component of the decolonizing mindset. That brings me nicely on to a question around SOAS's self-awareness and indeed SOAS's history. Many people will regard SOAS as a colonial institution. As, as a historian yourself, would you say that is an accurate description of the university? And how does a colonial institution decolonize itself? Is that even possible? Big, big questions, uh, but, but really important ones. And yeah, I've got increasingly interested in SOAS's very particular history uh, and relationship with colonialism in the last couple of years. So, I mean, I think that that's a tricky one. I think that on the one hand, there's a call for SOAS to better recognise its imperial past. SOAS was set up in 1916 uh, as an institution to train imperial civil servants. But even that argument and that call on the school to kind of recognise its imperial past, sometimes itself has fallen sort of foul of accuracy. And I think that the, the the idea of SOAS as this kind of imperial institution is not as informed and, and is not as aware of, of the more complex truth as it could be. So SOAS was set up in 1916 to train colonial officials to for posts across the empire. But it was also, it was never just that. It was also set up as an academic institution, a kind of a school of orientalist scholarship along the lines of similar kinds of schools that were very prominent uh, in in scholarly circles in France and in Germany. So right from the beginning, SOAS had this kind of dual identity. On the one hand, it was about a kind of vocational training institution. But on the other hand, it was a, a place of, of learning. And those those two sides of the project may seem to kind of fit together quite nicely in, in one version of colonialism, but actually they had quite different agendas as the school went on. The other thing to remember in all of that is that while SOAS was the first institution to be set up in the UK to train imperial civil servants, it wasn't the only place training them at all. That actually, one, you know, the question you might ask is why was it only in 1916 that the British state set up a vocational training college for, for imperial civil servants when the heyday of the British Empire was the 1880s and 1890s? So imperial civil servants have been trained long before 1916 in Oxford and in Cambridge and in Edinburgh and also in in Dublin too, in Ireland too. So in, in the kind of really the, the, the older, more established universities had been part of this training process. And SOAS was significant because it was the first place that was explicitly set out to, to train people for that work and to train people for that work as if it were important work in itself, not just something that you tacked onto the back of a more general degree in kind of classics or, or ancient civilizations. From the outset, it had quite a different set of students engaged with its two projects. So this this idea of SOAS as a vocational training college, it was supposed to receive civil servants from the Indian civil service, uh, but also from, from the colonial office. And 
actually very few of those students ever came. The colonial office wasn't particularly keen on spending money to train its officers for these specialist courses in languages and in kind of cultural practices. And it did send students for short-term courses, but never for a very long time. The India office had been a keen supporter of SOAS when it was being set up, but India began to devolve power to Indian, sorry, the imperial government of India began to devolve power to Indian legislators from 1919. And they didn't want to use Indian government money to fund SOAS. So the India office never sent very many students to SOAS, civil servants to SOAS too. But the academic side of SOAS began to flourish quite early on. And one of the principal group of students who came there were Indian students who, well, from wealthy backgrounds, but who wanted to continue their studies. So came and did degrees at SOAS. In the 1920s, the single biggest group of students to get PhDs, to get degrees from SOAS, were from the Indian subcontinent. None of this is to say that SOAS therefore was not an imperial institution far from it. But I think what SOAS shows us is that actually empire itself was a really complicated process and or, or involved many different people or meant different things to different people and, and involved multiple hierarchies, not just a kind of uh, white British people enslaving people of colour, that there are the Indian elites who came to study at SOAS, challenged some of those racial hierarchies in the space of SOAS, but also enacted different hierarchies within other sections of, of South Asian society when they returned home. So I think that the history of SOAS is important to look at to acknowledge that colonial past, but also to really unpack and think about how complicated that colonial past is in order to see the many legacies that it has today. If we only think about colonialism in very simple black and white terms, racially or around class divides, we won't understand why it's still, you know, imperialism is still such a pervasive ideology in society today. It's precisely because it's complicated and, and meant different things for different people at different moments that imperial ideology lives on in ways that we don't always identify as clearly as we, we need to. And of course, this conversation is currently happening, you know, in increasingly so in the mainstream. It's, you know, become social media memes around decolonizing and, and the whole sort of culture of um, social media activism ha has taken the decolonizing movement very much uh, to the fore, I think, at least maybe a, a particular generation. Do you see any pitfalls in that? Because when I'm listening to you, I'm hearing, you know, I'm hearing a lot of complexity. I'm hearing a lot of nuance. And I just wonder as somebody who has a depth of understanding based on your on obviously your your work as a historian but also your work the decolonizing movement at SOAS do you have any frustrations with the way that the movement is discussed in the public sphere currently are there any particular concerns that you might have around um, how the decolonizing conversation is either being depicted or pushed forward it, it's always complicated I mean in on the one hand how do I you know ideas spread through simple messaging, that the more straightforward an argument you can make, the more people can pick it up and, and engage with it. But I think with a the kinds of arguments that are emerging now around racial equality, social justice, and history teaching in particular, simplistic arguments can also create pitfalls or, or, or kind of most dangerously, I guess my big concern about debates at the moment is that it would just lead to further inaction. I mean, I think the murder of George Floyd is shocking, is shocking, full stop. But it's also another 
it's, it's not shocking because it's the first time that's happened. Actually, you know, we're seeing now statistics about just how ingrained racism is, anti-blackness is in institutions. And, and that's, you know, I think this is a moment where there's a strong and important and appropriate fo- focus on anti-blackness. But that argument is also part of a wider set of ongoing inequalities. And as with all these things, the big danger I see is that we can talk good talks, we can all learn new words, we can kind of follow certain blog posts and, you know, pass on memes and and, and virtue signal our way through this. Or we can actually think more systematically about how to actually try and stop some of the inequalities that we're we're seeing now. And that is much harder work. Again, so social media is great for spreading the message, but it's also part of a very particular system of capitalism that I, you know, in which we're identified as consumers and there's feel-good factors around it. And I guess kind of old arguments about armchair activism that, you know, sharing a meme or liking a message, that's not enough right now. This is a moment that requires hard work of institutions but also of individuals for people to yeah think critically to reflect more deeply and people need to know how to do that that's not something that kind of falls out of the sky otherwise we would have done that I think there's an onus on individuals to think about the roles that they're playing in structural inequalities, structural racisms. And there's work to be done by people who are talking about this to to make sure that they flag to to their listeners or their viewers or their readers about the kind of the complexities involved in this. And there's there's different work to be done. I mean, I know that many of my colleagues of colour and black colleagues spend a huge amount of time and a huge amount of labour explaining to people what, what's at stake in these questions and have done so for a long time. So I think it's time for everyone and, you know, white people, but, but everyone actually. You know, I think we all play a role in thinking you know, this isn't just a moment to talk about why what's happening now is bad. This, this has been happening for a long time. Now is the moment to think about how, how we can stop it. And we all need to think collectively and individually about the roles we can play in that. And so I'm just um, thinking about sort of some of my work around um, critical race theory and whiteness. And and sometimes I look at the conversations that are happening and I I think this is, you know, if you think of critical race theory, uh, sometimes I describe it as a samurai sword. And, you know, you ideally want to be a samurai if you're handling a samurai sword. But obviously the mainstreaming of some of these concepts means that, you know, they're popularized, which in many ways is what you want if you want ideas to spread. But you also don't want anyone and everyone handling a samurai sword does that speak to you at all as an analogy when it comes to decolonizing yeah yeah I I can definitely get that but I guess there's also a part of that which is that people don't want to be on the other side of a samurai sword uh, and 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 feel scared of that and on the one hand quite right that you know there, there, there is an aspect of that but I think I think there's also a need to take people with with us I'm going to use us in a slightly problematized you know I'm not going to assume that us there but that the, there are the fear and shame are important parts of this they're not going to be emotions that do the work in and of themselves and I think that's where there are different kind of tasks to be done here um and I guess yeah as I say I am a kind of white middle class British woman, cisgendered woman, and and maybe my particular work at the moment is to think about sort of how to engage other white colleagues and peers to look at that sword and think about how they can wield it, but also about how they can be taken apart with it too. I mean, I think, I guess there's a question of vulnerability in all of this. And, and I think we're all vulnerable, but in different ways. Um, and, and yes, 
obviously there's the argument about white fragility and I, but I think that that's slightly different you know white fragility gets weaponized and and thrown back we all play a role in in or we can all very easily play a role in enacting uh, inequalities and hierarchies that that's not something that's kind of given or taken away to us by virtue of our our, our embodied person we can all be uh, we can all uphold systemic racism patriarchies and and inequalities you know we need to think around that too we need we, we are fragile beings none of us are immune none of us are a, a, a superhuman in this we can all be taken apart with the sword as well as wield it and I guess it's it's that it's that dual work that we need to keep in mind and in terms of the work that's currently happening um at SOAS I mean you've already mentioned that you know there isn't really a coherent sort of vision for the final outcome of, of what a decolonized SOAS could look like and and there are obviously competing views in terms of what the decolonizing process ought to look like. Are there any risks that you anticipate or any pitfalls from that particular approach that you or any of your colleagues are concerned about? Or or is this just a new dialectical way of conceiving of equalities, which because of its novelty is going to take some time for people to get their head around? Or is there a third way, which I haven't thought of? Uh, If you you think of a third way, let me know. That would be that would be good. I yeah I mean I think I think that decolonizing so as movement is as much a part of the kind of broader conversation and the and the broader problems we've talked about so far and I think this has been the reaction in the last couple of months to I mean I think first of all the impact of covid on communities of color in the UK and more globally and then of course the black lives matters movement more recently has given those the working group and, and colleagues who are involved in kind of the decolonizing work at SOAS a moment to pause and reflect and to really think about the importance of action you know I, th- I think that there is you're absolutely right that there are different approaches to decolonizing at SOAS and there's different you know lots of different events going on and different communities engaging with it in different ways and that's great but we also need to have concrete action and I think that concrete action needs to focus first and foremost on ourselves so SOAS still has uh, a large awarding gap between you know, we have students of colour and black students in particular who come into the institution with the same A-level results as their peers but leave with a lower degree there's a higher proportion of, stu- of, of black and students black students and students of colour who leave with a with a lower degree than their white peers there are ongoing discussions about pedagogy in the classroom about uh, reading lists so you know so as is so as is talking about these things in ways that not all institutions are doing but we're, we're not eliminating those problems and I think that this is a moment where mobilizing what decolonizing it so as means into action is really critical I think that we we need to decolonizing the decolonizing so as movement is going to be judged on on that in the coming months and years that that work needs to be done in a complicated environment in quite a kind of hostile environment in terms of university funding uh, and, and pressures on students and 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 particularly around kind of covid um so it's, it's certainly not going to be easy but I think that a big danger for so as right now is if we don't marshal the thinking power, the act, you know, the, the energy of people who are involved in this debate into real action in the classroom, we're going to start failing our students to a greater extent than, than is already going on. I think students come to SOAS with a lot of hope and a lot of expectation about what learning at SOAS is going to be about and involve. I think, you know, decolonizing SOAS has been branded in, in really clear and obvious ways. We need to think about what that actually translates into students' lives. Um, and if, if we don't show that 
we as an institution are actively thinking about that and acting on the feedback we're receiving, students and, and other parts of the community quite rightly can turn around and say, well, what, 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 do you, what is all of this? This is just lip service. This is just kind of speech without action. And, and that would be a real danger. And I think that would be a failure to act on this kind of point, important point of self-reflection and, and critical thinking that is at the heart of decolonizing whatever you think that means and so in terms of that concrete action for people listening in and and maybe saying you know well this all sounds very you know theoretical what does decolonizing look like in your department what are some of the actions that are you know concretely happening in order to try and decolonize history at SOAS and I ask this obviously in the context of the headlines that uh, we've seen with you know oh philosophers are being removed you know no more white philosophers at SOAS which of course for anyone wondering is a, a myth and, and in fact the call to uh, decolonize philosophy was about expanding the range of uh, philosophers and philosophies being studied what, what does it look like in your department Eleanor? Sure well I should say that philosophy is part of my department so I, I sit in oh. the school of <laughs> history religion and philosophy um, but you're, you're I mean you're quite right that that kind of the the press debate around the development of the world philosophy course at SOAS was bad journalism if you're going to be generous um, and and kind of white supremacism if you're going to be a bit more critical about it all. So it was about expand. well it was about expanding the course but from next year there's there's also the course is being reformed again to not just draw in different thinkers or expand the way that we're kind of the, the question of who we see as being a philosopher but actually to think more explicitly about race and, and gender and heteronormativity and how that shapes our very understanding of knowledge. So there's new first year modules that are going to talk explicitly about race and knowledge production in relation to philosophy but I mean that's so that's I'm working with colleagues who are doing that though that's not my own program in history one of the things we've done over the last few years is to think about kind of geographic imagination of history as it's received at school um so I didn't do very much non-western history at school and where I did it was largely through a framework of colonialism and so one of the things we're realizing is that lots of students come to study history at SOAS and our history program focuses on the regions of of Asia Africa and the Middle East we don't have any course explicitly on on Europe and the global north although of course history's of that region are integral to the histories of the other regions that we're teaching about because of of colonialism but we didn't if if you set up these if you set up the global south as being a space that's only brought into historical conversation through colonialism you're always going to have europe at the center stage you're always going to have kind of white society at the center of your historical narrative so we've been thinking about that quite deeply in terms of the structure of our first year course in particular and we've reorganized our history of the world course to a think more critically about inequality so think questions about kind of human resource use in the environment social inequality around gender and race and and sort of put that at the center of our world history thinking and not questions of kind of warfare or or kind of diplomacy which is often how world history is framed but we also wanted to kind of put colonialism in its place. So the course actually starts from 40,000 BCE and runs all the way through to the present day. And we really, we kind of pick up colonialism, I guess, at the sort of two or three weeks into the second term to show that actually where you, how you you set up your historical story has a big impact on who your main actors are. So our students learn that actually Europe's a kind of 
damp backwater where not not a lot's going on for most of kind of this time period we're looking at that there's huge states being built empires being created you know complex systems of wealth and of inequality in their own way taking place in in other parts of the world long before kind of Europe emerges as the center of quote unquote civilization so we've been trying to use that course to really kind of push our first year students to think about how they've learned history up till now and to kind of critically engage with that and see the problems with the way in which history is framed at school we are also um, I'm, I'm also teaching another course within the history program it's currently open for second and third years but from 2021 it will become one of our first year courses which is about the history of SOAS and so as his own role in colonial knowledge production and about how imperialism has shaped the formation of all the key academic disciplines that we study at SOAS. So history, development studies, we also talk about science and why that's not taught at an institution like SOAS. So we are, are seeking to sort of draw those into the programme. But I was going to say, I mean, so I think that kind of that's the intellectual content. But what we're beginning to realise increasingly is the intellectual content's only part of the journey. And so alongside that, it's got to be about engaged pedagogy. So again, kind of going back to my example of the kind of partition class that I taught when I started teaching a few years ago and that really kind of got me thinking about decolonization in terms of SOAS. One of the things I've taken away from that class is that I'm not I'm not the expert who knows everything about partition in India in 1947. Rather, I'm a kind of facilitator and I can present information about different historical approaches and I can point students towards things to read or watch or listen to. Students from South Asian heritage backgrounds, they also have a lot of knowledge to bring into the classroom. They can also teach me and other members in the classroom too. And I think I've started to use more and more peer-to-peer teaching and trying to, you know, use classroom, facilitate classroom discussions as a place where we can all think together as active learners. So I think that's also part of what we need to do at the moment. It's not just about intellectual content. It's also about how we teach, how we approach the classroom, who's the expert and who, you know, who holds knowledge in this process and who are avoiding an idea of kind of passive students who, because so our students are, are not passive and nor should they be. No, and I think that's that's a really interesting point about the extent to which um, people's lived experiences, we're sort of increasingly recognising that that itself is a wealth of knowledge that people are bringing, particularly students who have direct experiences of coming from former uh, colonial states that they bring to the table, which, you know, however uh, much reading uh, any of us do, uh, can't can't fully compare to, to some of those direct experiences. Thank you so much, Eleanor, for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, we we'll be exploring more issues around the history, colonialism and memory uh, at SOAS uh, in the second part of this podcast. That's it for this episode of the SOAS Festival of Ideas podcast. Be sure to check out all the events and recordings on the SOAS Festival of Ideas website. <laughs>